This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger's been in Japan for a year. He's not going to play English football. I will love it if we beat them. It's the history of the Tottenham. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. Con Giovanni, yeah, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. Penalties? What is penalties? <laughs> Who are Man United? Wait a minute. Hang on a second. Do we? Is there? Is that a Premier League t- title race I see in the distance, or are Liverpool in a false sense of security now they've reached the top of the table? Should we bother with the remaining 22 fixtures left in the season? Hello and welcome to the Total Football Podcast, where I, Declan Hart, am not joined by Andrew this week, but instead the long-awaited return of one Matthias O'Flaherty. Hello! How do you, what do you think of Liverpool's title prospects now? They've, they've won it now, haven't they? Surely. Oh, I mean, they're invincibles. Yeah. You know, haven't lost a game all season. They're the only unbeaten team left, aren't they? Yep, after that City game. I suppose that's impressive. I mean, it is in its own way. You know, they've got four or five draws, but uh, still unbeaten. Yeah, they've dropped a yeah they've dropped a few points, but I, I feel like they've gone on a good winning streak. When, when was the last time they dropped points? Was it the Mass City match? Might have been. Might have been. I don't remember. I, I only remember them beat. Uh, it's so hard to remember all these matches. Like they yeah. beat Bournemouth four 0 pretty convincingly, but they go top because Manchester City have been they're fallible. It turns out. Who would have guessed it? Who yeah. would have guessed it? Because since we we last spoke with you, listener, uh, all teams in the Premier League have played twice, and Chelsea have had. Quite the week, they lost 2-1 to Wolves and then beat the champions 2-0 at home. Such a topsy-turvy week for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Wolves game was weird in itself because they went 1-0 up and looked very comfortable for the first hour and completely collapsed. They let in two goals and didn't seem to have any idea what to do. Yeah, like uh, that was only their second defeat of the season. Like The Tottenham one was their first one, which was not that long ago. Two weeks ago now, was it? Yeah, I think it even might have been last week's was game. It, was it last week's I game? Think, I think it was straight Everton nil all, the Tottenham loss, and the Wolves loss, all in a row. Did they not beat someone in between Tottenham and Wolves? Sorry, they beat Fulham. Oh, that's, that's right. what it was. Yes, yeah, yes, I was yes, thinking, yes. yeah. So they only lost the first few games suddenly, and they were keeping up with Man City and Liverpool pretty well up to then, and then all of a sudden, like I was going into the Man City or Man City Chelsea match thinking, assuming they'd lose it, and then... You know, they wouldn't be too far off Man United, who have had a terrible season in their own right, so it would have been just weird, but then they go and have this amazing performance against uh, Man City. Yeah, I think they're eight points off United and eight points off City, which, all things considered, is probably a fair representation of where they stand right yeah, now. Yeah, probably. I think definitely the fact they were keeping up with Liverpool and Man City was flattering to see to, to, to deceive a little bit. Yeah, um, sorry, he kind of said that himself. He did, yeah. He was very forthright about it. Um, they had a good couple of results and a couple of games that, you know, they won but really could have easily gone the other way or they could have lost points. It wasn't like uh, City at all who have been blowing out teams or Liverpool who also seem to be fully capable of putting four or five on half the league. But what's been weird about Liverpool has been the way they're grinding out results. And like Normally, that's always the cliche is that's the sign of champions, but... Because Man City have been just destroying teams left and right, it's almost made Liverpool look really weak in a way. I mean, I think we've forgotten what it takes to win the league. You yeah. know, Man City have come along and blown all of our expectations out of the water. Because um, what Liverpool are doing now without this City team would be probably on course to win the Premier League 18 out of the last 20 years. You know, they're a very, very good side right now. Um, 
And they are finally getting those wins against all the small teams too. You know, I don't see this team blowing a 4-0 lead to Crystal Palace. Yeah, like it was. there's no Christian Bull for this Liverpool no, side. No, no. And this Liverpool side is a lot more balanced than Brendan Rodgers' side was, or maybe even Rafa Benitez. Well, I think maybe less so Rafa Benitez' side. That was a pretty well-balanced side that just came up against a really good United side. They were really unfortunate there. Yeah, whereas, definitely. Whereas Brendan Rodgers' side definitely had the qualities of a league-winning side, but it was mostly to do with Luis Suarez being as good as he was, and Diana Sturridge and Raheem Sterling as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously the other two chipped in a lot, but um, there was an over-reliance on Suarez that we saw last year a little bit with Salah that hasn't really been present this year. You know, Salah took a step back to start the year. He wasn't quite up to his high standards the last season, but um, they haven't lost a step, you know, and now he's got a hat-trick against Burnmouth at the weekend so you know he's back in form and the other attackers can keep up the form they've started the season with it could be trouble for the rest of the league yeah like it, it's totally different now that they are top of the league because the last few weeks Andrew and I have been kind of joking that one slip up and that's the title race over for Liverpool but it's Man City that have blunk, blinked blunk? blinked blinked first but I think it was blunk can, can it be blunk from now on <laughs> uh, but it's Man City that have blinked first completely unexpectedly like obviously you can't assume they're going to be a team like Chelsea with qualities, but they've been so good that you can kind of make that assumption. I mean, yeah, like City never looked like they're going to drop points, unlike any of the other teams. I think they were behind for 19 minutes total across the entire league season before this Chelsea game. Yeah, I don't think I think it was actually 12, not even 12. 19. Like, yeah. It just goes to show and it was against Wolves, yeah. who were a very good side in their own right. Yeah, I mean, it's a completely absurd number. They never look like they're going to lose, and they always look like they're capable of scoring goals. But um, there are definitely frailties. I think Chelsea exploited that a little bit. And I think you do have to see that um, City aren't used to losing. They aren't used to being behind, you know. And um, definitely there's a mental capacity there that um, they haven't really had tested yet. You yeah, know, like We saw that last season a couple of times they did lose, like against, against Liverpool mostly, and to a lesser extent against Manchester United in the derby at the second half of the season. But like when they lost to Liverpool in the league, they kind of took it on the chin. Pep was kind of like, "Oh, I know, I told you, I told you so. I told you that we'd lose the game eventually." But when it came to the Champions League, Man City did not take that defeat particularly well at all. No, and I think it's a trend. If you look at City over the last, even before Pep got there, with some of the players they have, um, they never take well to losing. They never take well to being behind. Um, Aguero can be. Petulant sometimes about it. Um, yeah, I remember him uh, kicking David Luiz a few times. Yeah, yeah, he's had a few battles with Luiz down the years. Um, Sterling can get his head down when the game's not going his way and other things are happening, which we might get to later. Um, there's a couple of others. Kyle Walker has that sort of mentality as well. You know, he's brilliant when everything's going his way, but can get a little under the cosh when it isn't sometimes. Um, Fernandinho's lost his head a couple of times. Fernandinho. Like, I, I always kind of think back to that uh, Man City-Chelsea match in Conte's first season, the one that kind of tipped the title race in Chelsea's favour. Yeah. It was a 3-1 win for Chelsea at the Etihad. 3-1 win, two red cards, Aguero and Fernandinho. Yeah, and they were sent off very late in that match. A huge yes. brawl yeah. ended up ensuing there right at the end. And Fernandinho would flabbergasted by the throat yes. at yeah. one point. like It was completely vicious there yeah yeah and Fernandinho has only become more and more crucial to this city team so you know he's somebody they can't do without it's just leaders like that um everything's good when they're winning but there is there is 
and obviously it's not all the time when they go behind. It's not all the time when they're losing. Um, you know, there was none of that against Lyon, for example. But they do sometimes, and I mean, maybe it's even against certain teams. It happens against Chelsea, you know. That's a, that's who they got the two red cards against. That's who they went and lost to this weekend. Um, it happens against Liverpool, like you said. You know, um, some teams do have an ability to get in their head and just throw them off their game a little bit, especially if they don't get the first goal. You know, I think if they get the first goal in this Chelsea game, none of this happens. You know, they win comfortably in the end. And it, it looked like at one point it was just a matter of time before they score first. I remember Sané had a, an amazing chance that he just took a little too long a time with and then ended up having his shot blocked. I think it was David Luiz and maybe it was Marcus Alonso. Yeah, and I definitely think um, that Aguero being missing hurt them. Because, you know, not only is he the best finisher of the lot, but he's also the most experienced player there, you know? Um, Sterling and Sané, they're both still young players. You can't always expect them to come up and get the first goals and the ones that matter because, you know, um, that's a skill that just comes with experience and leadership. You know, it's a leadership issue and that comes, you know, with maturity and with age and with experience and with having played more. And Aguero is really the guy you look to in that forward line for. Yeah, and the thing as well is that it was quite interesting that this match started off with no strikers on the pitch between the two sides. Hazard playing false nine and that Man City attack just kind of doing its thing, you know, very fluid in the way it was. But it, I, I was almost kind of disappointed when Gabriel Jesus came on then with like an hour played or 70 minutes played. I was like, you kind of ruined this kind of interesting, yeah. I'm going to say tactical battle because I don't think the tactical battle was as interesting as it could have been. But kind of ruined the fun of there just being no strikers on a pitch on the pitch between two big sides yeah yeah it was an odd one wasn't it and I have to say Jesus didn't play all that well when he came on no his form has been missing the last year year and a half I yeah, would say. Yeah, I, like I remember he started very well like a house on fire yes. when he arrived in England and was like oh no Man City have signed a replacement for Aguero and he's already scoring loads of goals but then he picked up I think it was a metatarsal injury and then was out for three months and He's had patches here and there where he's playing well, but he's never hit the kind of consistent form that Man City will need from an Aguero replacement. Well, I mean, it's months since he scored a goal, isn't it? Yeah, I can't remember the last time he scored a league goal, other than maybe the odd tap-in or fourth goal and a 4 yeah. win. I think he is two this season or something, which, yeah. you know, in that City side is almost more of an achievement than um, <laughs> 10. Yeah, that is that is kind um, of a, a reverse achievement in, in and of itself. Like, yeah. I remember last year he went from like November to March without scoring a goal. Yeah. Like, again, as you say, like to do that in that Man City squad as the striker is impressive almost. Yeah, and obviously you shouldn't take it as a knock on his quality. He's obviously a very good player, but you know he's still a young lad um, and young players do go through patches like that. And City can afford to carry a player who's not scoring goals like that. But you know what it does mean is that in some of these games you can't rely on him for the goal that matters. You know, City, um, especially in that first half, they really needed to get that goal. Towards the end, they were starting to get a little bit annoyed, a little bit frustrated, and then Chelsea went and scored a goal completely against the run of play, and that threw them off. That really threw them off, and it upset them. And they came out at halftime. You know, that's. it was kind of surprising to me the way that both teams came out after halftime, you know? Um, City, having been the better team in the first half, you know, dominated the whole game. You'd think that a team like that could kind of use the half time to take a step back, look at it and say, all right, that result didn't go the way we wanted. You know, we let in a goal right at the end. It's frustrating, but we're still the better team. If we keep playing like this the whole game, we will score at least one, if not two or three. But they didn't. They came out and they were 
I don't know. Was it that they were so much poorer? Or was it that Chelsea just came into it a lot more? Yeah, that, that was what was really surprising about the start of the second half was how much more expansive Chelsea were. They were playing more like Sarri wanted, would normally want them to. Whereas in the first half, they were quite reserved. I think the first chance they had the whole match, let alone on target, like the first actual even shot, was N'Golo Kante's strike. And can we just take a moment to just laugh at the absurdity of N'Golo Kante scoring that goal? It was, of all the players to pop up, I would have expected Thibaut Courtois to show up before <laughs> I would have expected N'Golo Kante. Uh, he's, he's already hit his career total at Chelsea so far this season in the first four months. Yeah, because he scored in the opening game of the season against Huddersfield. Yeah. I think that was the first goal in that match as well. So I think so, yeah. yeah. Landmark moments in uh, Sarri's managerial Chelsea stint uh, are always uh, marked by N'Golo Kante scoring. I mean, he's a great little player. And I mean, he played deeper today as well. Or not today, against City. He wasn't uh, quite as far up as he normally is because normally he's up on that right side. He's kind of the link between Jorginho and the forward players. Um, Against City, he was a little further back, a little more doing his normal thing, while also carrying the ball and trying to be that shuttle between the midfield and the attack. And, you know, he did it very well. He managed to carry out both duties at the same time. And, uh, you know, if he can do that against City, he can do it against anybody. Yeah, that was what was so impressive, because a few weeks ago now, Andrew and I, we we did our topic of the show on Ancolo Kante, and we kind of, we were, we were wondering what's his role in this side, because it just doesn't seem like it's working. And this has been something I'm thinking about since the Huddersfield match, back at the start of the season. I've just been wondering how he fits in that side. But he, he really answered me as a critic here today, or on Saturday, because I... He was superb. He was so good. That's like there was there was one moment in the second half where this this was probably the most impressive thing was how he ended the sequence. But he started the sequence by uh, he, he someone gave him a b- poor ball and he t- had a f- poor first touch and then Sterling came in and nicked the ball off. Yeah, him. yeah. and then Ingolo Kante immediately won the ball back and he just kind of laugh and go, oh, that's pure Ingolo Kante. And then. He, I can't remember, does he pass it or does he just lose possession again and then immediately wins it back? And again, you laugh, like, oh, this is classic Kante. And then he gets back possession and he strides forward with the ball and he plays this amazing pass for William, who then hits a very tame shot, probably should have done better on the shot. And it was the pass that really impre- impressed me because it was, like, by his standards, like, it's, it was a good pass. If someone else hits that pass, I'm thinking, oh, you know, that's a good pass. But because it was Kante, because he's not really known for hitting those kind of passes, it's just like it created a, such a good chance for winning. I was really impressed by that. Maybe I was wrong about Kante in his role at Chelsea. The thing about Kante is he's so, so good at defending and being a shield in that midfield that people do tend to overlook his other traits. You know, he's a very good dribbler. He's very hard to get off the ball. He can take it forward quickly. He can beat a man or two. You know, um, he's also... He's not the greatest passer in the world, but, you know, when he's got his head up and he's got a bit of time on the ball, he doesn't make mistakes with it, you know? He's good at the very basics of the Exactly. Game. You know, he's never going to be the most creative player on the pitch. He's never going to be like Fabregas. He's never going to be, you know, like David Silva. But he's fully capable of um, doing all of those things, like basic things, to a very, very high standard. And that's why I think long-term, the position he's in right now that Sarri hasn't playing could end up being his best position you know because he can still use his um, defensive skills to their full ability and also become more of a threat going forward yeah I, I still I still 
will reserve judge, judgment to see can he continue this kind of form. And I, I still think there's games where he should be just rested instead of for, for someone like Barkley or another midfielder just because they, he won't have to be winning the ball back as much as against City. Like against City, he's crucial because City has so much possession that him running around winning the ball is it's key to Chelsea being able to get anything from the game. But against other sides, maybe less so. Like against the likes of Fulham, it's less necessary that he's there because Fulham are only going to have so much of the ball. But you you mentioned kind of the creative players and there was one missing from this match that it's the first time that we've really noticed his absence, I think, this season. But Kevin De Bruyne has been injured now for quite a while. I feel like he's missed the majority of the season. He's only played about four or five times from what I remember, maybe a little more. Um, And he... Really noticed his absence yeah. on Saturday. I mean, for my money, he's top five midfielder in the world. You know, he's one of the very, very best, and any team is going to miss somebody like that. Um, but as well, you know, he's a young enough player, but he's really he is a leader in that Man City midfield. Oh, definitely. You know? He's definitely one of the guys that they look to when you know things are getting a little bit rough. They you look can, to you him. You can definitely grab the game by the scruff yeah. of the neck, as they say. Yeah, yeah. They always know they can give it to Kevin, and he'll just take it. You know calm down the game, slow it down, you know, decide what to do and, you know, just keep every get everybody calmed down again, get them reset and get them going again because um, he's just such a good midfielder, you know, and he, like, they don't need him specifically for his creativity because that's the one thing that City have in absolute spades, you know, and they already have Silva and Mendy and all these other brilliant creative players in the middle, but they, De Bruyne is all-round game is much stronger than those other players, you know? And um, especially when it comes to a tough game like this where City are under the cosh a bit and they're you know, and they not allowed to be as creative as they want to be. When they're not allowed to play football as much as they want to be, De Bruyne is definitely the guy you want in there because he'll find a way to get it going again. Yeah, and like the thing with De Bruyne as well is he strikes fear into the opponent as well. Like If, if De Bruyne is playing, there's someone always keeping an eye on De Bruyne at least one if not two whereas when he's not there David Silva fantastic player one of the great midfielders of the Premier League but I don't think he strikes that same fear and neither does Bernardo Silva so when De Bruyne is missing it kind of it releases a bit of tension off the opponent you know a little a little weight's been lifted off their shoulders and they can be like okay they're missing De Bruyne we, we can maybe get something out of this and most teams can't because they just have that much talent at Man City but when you come up against a side like Chelsea who are confident on the ball, you can you can see why Chelsea were so confident in the second half when they came out, and they were playing so much more exp- mm. like they, they were creating so many more chances. I think they quickly had three shots on target within like fifteen minutes at the start of that second half. So like I think De Bruyne's absence was clear there yeah. as well. Yeah, no, I really think that um, Sarri's Chelsea still need another half a year and a top quality centre forward. You know, but give them that, and honestly, between them, Klopp's Liverpool and Guardiola City, we could have one of the greatest rivalries in Premier League history yeah, over the next three I, or four years. I'm very excited to see what Sarri does with this team, provided he's given the time to do so. Like, I still, I'm still skeptical of Chelsea in this weird era where I don't yeah. know how much time they are willing to give managers now, because obviously, previously, Abramovich was sacking managers to beat the band here, like it was going uh, going out of style. But uh, recently, like he gave Mourinho a load of time when he was 16th in the league, yeah. And then Conte was wasn't even sacked by the time Sarri had come in. Like yeah. he was still hanging around doing preseason training this this year. And I mean, Conte wasn't really sacked because of performances or anything. You know, it was much more to do with um, falling out with 
everybody at the club, all of the players, um, potentially costing Chelsea millions by letting Diego Costa know he wasn't wanted anymore. Um, there was a lot more reasons than just, you know, not playing well. So I do think, um, yeah, it's hard to tell if that's a proper track record now or anything because Mourinho, Mourinho was always going to get time at Chelsea. You know? Yeah, he was because you, you know he's the most successful manager yeah. in, in their history. He's a total legend there. You know, he's never going to be fired early again. Yeah, <laughs> this time round. Um, and I think really the first time Abramovich fired Mourinho, he at this point realizes that that was probably a bit too quick and a bit too harsh. Yeah, and they had, they had kind of fallen out as well at that point. Yeah, they, and they eventually built built those bridges back. Yeah, and then. Like who who was Rafa Benitez before that, wasn't he? As interim. Yes. So like it's yeah. been twenty twelve since they last sacked a manager and even that manager was even Roberto then. Di Matteo, so it's hard to even really look into that yeah. too much. And I mean when you look at the VS Boas sacking, that only happened because, you know, he was trying to change the culture and everything and got it wrong, you know, out you know, I we don't want to go too far into Chelsea's managerial history because we could be here for a long time. But um, you could definitely make the argument that um, his position was just completely unreasonable. He had to go, you know, with having alienated so many players and his grand rebuild being a complete failure. And that, you know, that wasn't a harsh stacking at all. That was, if anything, he was given too much time there again. Yeah, so it is interesting. Like, that was 2011, so like seven years ago now, going into eight, because it was March that year, I think, maybe late February. So, like, it's been a long time since Chelsea were mercilessly just sacking managers every so often. Yeah. So, it's interesting to see how much time Sarri will be given. But the, you, you kind of touched on this as well. The one last thing we want to talk about this match is uh, the Raheem Sterling incident. Because there was a video that kind of went viral of Chelsea fans hurling abuse at Raheem Sterling. And, you know, I'm not going to throw a huge brush at all Chelsea fans. It was clearly just these two or three people. Uh, and obviously we don't know specifically what they said, but it seemed, and it's brought up the conversation of the racism going on in, in England at the moment, and especially in English football. And it's so sad to see Raheem Sterling be targeted the way he is by tabloids in, in England as well. And it's just, like, there's a huge Kick It Out campaign video going on on the Friday as well. They were kind of showing managers as a, as a template of what passion for the game was. You know, there's ones of Ferguson and... and jumping around and Mourinho and Wenger getting into spats or whatever but and then showing the other side of it that fans just take it far too like way too far and it's just really sad to see oh yeah definitely I mean Sterling you know he hasn't done anything wrong you know he's never he's been he's just played football yeah he's never he's never been in any sort of incidents outside of football he's never you know he's never been drunk driving he's never been in fights outside of nightclubs you know there are a lot of players who've done a lot worse than Sterling I mean, and he gets a lot, a lot of hate, you know, he's, he's kind of held up as this example of everything modern footballers are, you know, young, overpaid and overhyped in the British media. But I mean, Sterling's one of the few people that you can kind of say, well, he isn't really, you know. He's, he's one of the most likable footballers I can remember in a long time. Genuinely. And, and there, a part of that is, you know, the tabloids. Pushing against him makes me want to push with him. I mean, yeah, some of that. But at the same time, you know, he's a former Liverpool and current Man City player and I still like him. So, you know, yeah. that's that's not easy to do. <laughs> um, no, like the treatment he gets, especially... And I do think that the British tabloids are a big part of the whole back... Like, the backlash against him there. And 
indeed a lot of young black players. You know, you got to call a spade a spade. Yeah, th- um, this isn't just with Raheem yeah. Sterling. He's just kind of the face. He's, of he's it. the face of it exactly. He had an Instagram story the last day with um, a couple of different newspaper headlines from places like the Daily Mail and the Sun, and. Um, the language that they use, you know, they're talking about two separate stories about two different players at two different times. You know, both bought their parents a house. Both houses were around the same mark, you know, two million. Both players were on about the same monthly wage. Both players had yet to play a game for their club. And, you know, one was presented, oh, young Premier League starlet buys house for a mum. And the other one was... Um, teenager on 20,000 a week who's yet to make a first appearance splashes on two million mansion yeah, you know and I remember it's, the same thing with kind of like I remember it was Harry Kane as well that uh, I saw this comparison of like Harry, Harry Kane and Raheem Sterling uh, both have significant others and they both uh, met those significant others at the same age but the tabloid would be like oh Harry Kane with childhood sweetheart and the other one would be like Raheem Sterling with significant other who he has three wives or three children with or whatever yeah. like something that was meant to be slanderous which was just completely ridiculous yeah I mean they're not like you can defend it by saying oh well these are just the facts they're giving the facts but you have to look at the way they're presented and the yeah, way the, tone. the language around it the tone the words they use um, even the way the pictures are taken you know um, and it's clear that they're you know you'd Want to, you'd want to look at it a bit more um, in depth than I have to know if it's specific writers or if it's just the culture at the newspaper in general. But there's, uh, I would say that I wouldn't put too much pressure on the people that are writing those pieces because a lot of it is, you know, they've been told to write this piece by someone at the newspaper. Yeah, and I mean, newspapers write it because that's what sells. You know, there you can't hold them up as oh, the newspapers are doing this and it's driving hate. It's. I mean, it is in its own way. You know, there are people who read this and you know, kind of think, "Oh, these terrible players," and you know, they don't even internalize that it's so black versus white or whatever. But, but you know, if they're writing it like that, it's because it sells. It's because it strikes a chord with people, and it's just a. It's it's a window into an ugly part of society that we don't really like to have a look at, you know. But we need to kind of open up, face it, and say, you know, this is happening, this is real, and, you know, we can't shade, shade away from it. Yeah, and this is something that I, I've kind of been keeping an eye on. You know, I've, uh, there's a lot of people that, that publish, like, pictures of the contrasting articles, and I've seen a lot of them over the years. But I'm glad that this kind of story has come to the forefront now, and there are people standing with... Raheem Sterling on this as well and making sure that it, you know, it gets the conversation going and hopefully yeah. we can get somewhere with it. Yeah, definitely, because for, um, for all I said about you know society, it is good to see that a lot of people are looking at this and saying, you know, he has a point here and not just kind of saying, ah, look, it's just newspaper headlines. There are people who are looking, taking an interest and kind of saying this is wrong, there should be something done about this and hopefully, you know, something will be done and Raheem Sterling won't have to be the face of, you know, this whole phobia, you know, xenophobia, I don't know what sort of phobia exactly, but this whole ugly side of football, because it's very linked to football too. You know, it's not just um, Britain's problems or whatever. It's it's especially with football fans. You can see, like, that video, the way they're acting is insane. You know, you wouldn't act like that on the street to somebody. You wouldn't act like that, you know, to anybody at your work or anything, but somehow it's acceptable at a football stadium. Yeah, it really shouldn't be. And of course, last week as well, there was a whole incident with the Tottenham fan throwing a banana peel at Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang at the North London Derby. And 
that was being looked into as well. And that, like, again, that's the kind of stuff that, like, kick it out or the the anti racism campaign in the UK to do with football. I don't know if they do work outside of sport, and they've done a very good job highlighting this kind of stuff. But like, the fact that we even need kick it out is just mm. it's kind of depressing. It is, yeah. You can go for stats. That's that's the way people that don't understand football analyze football is with stats. I don't go for stat. I don't go for stat. The Copa Libertadores final second leg took finally took place this weekend. River Plate ended up victorious in the first ever Super Classico final. Of course, the match was originally supposed to take place in El Monumental in Argentina. Makes sense. Both teams are from Argentina. However, this match took place in the Bernabeu in Madrid. Have Conneball set an unwanted precedent or is it really that big a deal to take a football match outside of his country or even continent of origin? Well, I mean, it's a bit of a joke, really. You know, um, if you look at uh, what happened in the first leg and why the game was not held in the second leg, and there are definite issues, there are definite problems there, but I don't understand how you can have a continental competition outside of the continent it should be on. You know, it's a bad precedent. Where are you going to see it next? Yeah, because you know? it could have been on in Doha, the way <laughs> things were going. That was initially the plan to, yeah. for it to be in Doha, which would have been even more ridiculous. I mean, how much of a time gap is there between Doha and Buenos Aires? Seven, eight hours at least, you know, you're having this football game, it'd have to be on in the morning in Doha then, if yeah, you want to get be, it. it would be very warm there as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's, yeah, and there's more and more talk about having football games abroad, like La Liga are, are still, I think, trying to have a game played in America. Yeah, I remember we, uh, Andrew and I, discussed this at the start of the season when this kind of first uh, came to light, but what's really funny to me is that it was hosted in the Bernabeu which is obviously the home of Real Madrid, one of the biggest club sides in the world. But and you mentioned this La Liga thing. Real Madrid are the one team one of the few one of the big teams anyway, they're completely against this moving La Liga matches to America or Mexico or wherever they want to put them. Which is it, which makes it just seem so ridiculous that they were so willing to host such an event. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think that some of that double standard can be explained by the reasons that it had to be postponed the first time. You know, for anybody who didn't hear, um, I think the first leg was in Boca Stadium, right? Yeah. Yes, Boca were playing at home for the first leg. Let me just check that. Oh, it was either. I think it was Boca. I'm fairly sure it was Boca played at home for the first leg and. Um, that game went off not entirely without a hitch, but as well as could be expected. It was the home of River Plate. Not okay, Bobby. River were playing at home. The same point stands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it was it was played. Um, it happened. You know, it went fairly well as can be expected. These derbies are always a little extreme. Um, but then for the away leg. Oh wait! I completely. You said the first leg was in. The Baca. first leg. Okay, you were right there. I thought okay. you said the second leg. Never mind. Yes, no. First leg was in Vaca. Then. In so the La second. Bombonera? La Bombonera. Yeah. yeah. So the second leg was due to be played in River Plate Stadium, and um, the reason it wasn't is because River fans th- were throwing rocks and stones at the Baca bus and broke a couple of windows, you know, and didn't injure anybody. But then the ride police came in and pepper sprayed the fans. And the pepper spray got into the team bus. Yeah, I think one of the players got injured by the bus. Cause, was one uh, of them. I can't remember his name. It's the captain of the team. I can't, uh, 
I'm not too familiar with Argentinian football as you might realise here. Uh, I can't remember his name now, but he had some glass in his eye, and that was initially why the first match wouldn't be played. Right. Or the second match. Well, there was also there was also the issue of all the well, not all the players, but some of the players who had inhaled the pepper spray were vomiting. You yeah. know, they were throwing up. Carlos Tevez I think, yeah. was affected by it. Yeah, they were treated with um, cortisol steroids which are on the banned substances <laughs> list by Common Ball. Oh, which, you know, I don't know, do you get an exemption if it's a Common Ball doctor giving it to you? I, uh, <laughs> you'd you'd I hope, you'd hope. But, like, there's all sorts of issues with that. You know, obviously it couldn't be played straight after some players were throwing up players glass in his eye and, and the, the stadium was filled as well though like this this is the, the total lack of communication I yeah. was trying my best to follow it because there were British journalists over there trying to cover the event and they did a very good job at doing that but like it was so it was such a lack of communication there there I were mean, fans singing and chanting and they hadn't been told the match was postponed it wasn't postponned until about an hour beforehand they kept trying to delay they like, kept, oh, yeah. we'll kick off in an hour we'll kick yeah. off in 30 minutes and then no players were on the pitch no, no, clear like, nothing was going to happen the players the players I mean they pretty much knew it wasn't going to go ahead six or seven hours before the game was due to start you know and the fans were just told off told off and you know that led to more riots um, when the game was called off, you know, and then it was originally just scheduled to be played a week later in the same stadium. All the fans with tickets would get to keep their tickets and they didn't have to buy new ones or anything. And um, it was postponed again, um, partially because uh, the G20 Summit was held in Buenos Aires. Yeah, that was such hilarious timing. Like All the world's leaders just happened to also be coming into Buenos Aires Literally yeah. a week later. Yeah, so the police couldn't guarantee um, the safety because obviously the world leaders are slightly, slightly more important than <laughs> then, football. Then the Super Classico final? I don't know. It's Argentina. <laughs> I, I would imagine most locals, most locals would be firmly inside of the football. But uh, the police had other priorities. Um, so it was decided it was unsafe then to hold the game and then there was talks about it being held in Italy I think Genoa offered their stadium yeah they were offering their stadium um, and there was uh, yeah. the, there was a the whole thing as well that the match had to be played by this yes. this time it was eventually played last yes, night yes exactly because the Club World Cup was starting on the 12th I want to say um, yeah so you know Ar- so the, Argent- or South America needed a representative exactly. yeah so it so, had to be it had to be played which exactly. is why it couldn't just wait another week and be played in River Stadium um which yeah. is why Doha was initially picked as well. Exactly. That's where the Club World Cup will be taking place. Yeah. Um, and I think there was, even after it was announced that Bernabeu was the new um, facility it was being held at, both teams came out and said that they wouldn't play if it was in Spain. Yeah, River were very adamant. And obviously they will be because they've their lost home. a home match. Yeah, it's yeah. their home leg. And fortunately they ended up winning in the end. They had 3-1 victory. I, I didn't get to watch the match myself. I must watch highlights later. But it sounded like um, I, watched the, I watched the goals. Yeah. First goal, the first Baca Junior goal was yeah. that the pass in was delightful. Yes, Baca went up 3-2 on aggregate and it was a very, very nicely scored goal. And um, then it went to extra time after a one-all draw in normal time. Um, no away goals, imagine no, that. Well, it's not... I Sorry, it, you can correct me if I'm wrong and uh, I'd have to look it up to be sure, but I think the way it works is that the away goals count after 120 minutes. Do they? So if it had finished 1-1, I think... It would have been one on away goals. I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure about. That. Okay, I, that's, I know the league that's, cup works like that in the yeah. semi-finals, but I don't think the Copa Libertadores does. I don't know. That was that was my understanding, but I could easily be wrong. Um, 
and yeah, then our River Plate ended up scoring another two goals in extra time to make it all superfluous anyway. The, the third goal was brilliant though because like uh, Boca Junior sent up their keeper and you know he actually nearly got on ahead because it was for a corner, nearly got ahead on it. And then River ran down the other end and scored the easiest goal he'd ever see. It was kind of like uh, South Korea, Germany back in the World Cup. Yes, yeah. And um, Quintero also scored an absolute oh, yeah, banger. One of my favourite players at the was, World Cup. He was absolutely delight to watch. Yes, and uh, he's carried that on into Argentina, obviously, um, with a lovely goal, really. And to score in a cup final is pretty, pretty special. I still preferred the Boca Juniors goal, though, just because that pass was just it perfect. Was, it, was, it was just a really good game it, of football. It, it reminded me of uh, Hernan Crespo's goal, yes. the Kaká pass in the 2005 final for yes, AC Milan. yes. No, it was just it was a really good game of football, and really anybody who wants to or who doesn't just enjoy good attacking football should go watch it. You know, it it was a treat to watch um, South American teams play for once because there is differences, you know, in their oh, style of football. And, you know, it was you know you're watching something slightly different. But uh, to go back to the initial topic of games being held, you know, outside of the stadium. Is it worrying that we enjoyed it so much? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think it is a bit because you know it's it's not our competition. Yeah, you know? like it, it's not Madrid's right to host that. It's not, and I mean the amount of fans who are complete, not just inconvenience. You know how much the flights from Argentina to Madrid cost? A lot. When they're happening at the last minute, booking you know three days in advance. I think they had to resell tickets. You know, anybody who bought old tickets were refunded. But you know, if you want to buy a new ticket, I'm sure it costs a lot more in the Bernabeu than it did over in um, River Plate. Um, like the, and it was still packed, completely packed. And not just by, you know, random blow-ins, but by hardcore Argentinian fans. Oh, yeah, they'll find a way to watch that they, match. Yeah, they travel thousands of miles to come just to watch their team play one game. And, I mean, it's an amazing display of how much the teams mean to them. But it also shows exactly why this shouldn't be allowed. You know, that these fans have had to go through so much bother and have to spend so much money just to follow their team. Yeah, like, imagine, like... It, because of this now, I, I mentioned the word precedent. Like, I think this is kind of a, a worry, worrisome precedent because, like, it really wouldn't shock me if the Champions League final in within the next five years is held in New York or in yeah. the United Arab Emirates or somewhere that's not Europe, somewhere where it shouldn't be. Yeah, and I think it's definitely more of a danger with the Champions League just because it's more commercialized. You know? Yeah, like the UEFA are seeing what's going on and they're like, okay, perfect. We've got Real Madrid on board clearly because if they're willing to host one, they're willing to play one. So let's go and get some extra money out of this yeah, and not care about the fans at all. Yeah, and I also think that inadvertently it's a boost to the idea of a European Super League. Oh, definitely, yeah. And because, you know, if, oh, well, if we can get players or fans following the team abroad, then, you know, there'll be no problem doing it in Europe where it's easier. But the the thing as well, though, kind of a counter argument is the fact that obviously with the Copa Libertadores final, it was a home match for River Plate. Yes. But... Let's just use the Kiev example of last year when Liverpool played Real Madrid. Both sets of fans had to go get their tickets, plane tickets and all, and go to Kiev. And they sell packages or whatever, so you can just pay one thing and get everything. But what is the difference between going to Kiev and going to New York? Well, the fact that the Champions League is a European competition. Is that a big enough reason to stop going to New York? Yeah, I do, I, I, it mightn't be in the end, but I think it should be, you know? Um, like, because the Champions League finals have always been held at a predetermined stadium somewhere in Europe. Um, Ajax and Juventus played in '95 in Athens. Um, 
Wembley hosted 2009? 2011. 2011. And 2013. And like 92? Yeah, Munich. Wembley, yeah. Munich had 2012. Um, yeah, there's Moscow, there's Rome, there's exactly. Istanbul, of course, there's the New Camp as well. Yeah. Like, these are all the biggest cities in Europe holding the biggest night in European football. I don't see anything fundamentally wrong with that, and, especially when it's just once a year. And Madrid get the uh, Champions League final this year because the one in Metropolitano is the Champions League destination this year, yes. I believe. So they get both the Copa de Libertadores and the Champions League. Yes, yes, even if it is in different stadiums. Um, but yeah, there's I, like so long as it's once a year for a final, it makes it feel more special, in my opinion, yeah, just oh, holding definitely. it in a neutral stadium like that. So I don't see a problem with that you know um, so long as it is just the final and it is in Europe yeah because like then there's the whole other conversation of La Liga like there's a huge difference between a cup final within, that's normally in a neutral venue anyway being taken out to somewhere you know we're picking on New York here it's just the big it is the big <laughs> ticket destination yes nothing against it per- as a city personally um, Andrew's there right now in fact <laughs> um, uh, but there's a huge difference between a neutral venue and bringing a designated home match that a team has for their league campaign out of wherever they play their home match into a completely neutral venue. Yeah. Somewhere nowhere near where they normally play. Yeah, even leaving aside the idea of the fans and, you know, commercialization and sellouts, it's just affecting the competitive balance of the league, you know? It's just not fair. Exactly. Because yeah. Girona against Barcelona, I think, is the... Rumored proposed one, proposed, yes. yeah, for March, I think, because when they want to hold yeah. that, so you know, that's coming up soon, and there's still no word on what's definitely happening there. So that's going to be interesting. But like, Girona, I think it's Girona, yes, are losing a home match there, and um, Barcelona yeah. are profiting off getting to bring a load of fans to New York, gaining yeah. exposure. Because, I mean, this international game, you're kidding yourself if you think there's going to be more Girona fans in the stadium, you know, it's going to be a Barcelona home crowd, basically, so they're going to get an extra home game. What if the title is decided by one point? Yeah, you know, you Which can. It, could be. it easily could be, and you can look at this and say, "Well, if that had been in Girona, they might have only got a draw instead of a win." You know, and that's like, two complete, points in the difference. Yeah, Change the title. The yeah. I mean, it makes a bit of a farce the whole league if you do it, and I really don't understand. Unless the only way it could work is if you have both games from two teams, and even then, like, so if both Barcelona Girona games were played abroad. Because that way nobody gets a home advantage in either game. So that at least balances out between the two of them. But then you can say, um, well, Barcelona were likely to beat Girona anyway. And if you get, say, Madrid and Valencia, who might be considered a tougher team, you know. Oh, well, we didn't get our home advantage against Valencia. You know, that's a big difference, you know, because we needed more to beat Valencia than we would to beat Girona. You know, you can never balance it perfectly. The only way to balance it perfectly is if every match is played abroad, and that's that's a nightmare scenario. I mean, I don't even think La Liga would ever sign off on that. It could, yeah, hopefully not. Although you never know with those guys. Uh, but like, even the Premier League were the ones to kind of initially propose an idea like this—a game thirty-nine. Yeah, ten were, years ago, which would have been similarly ridiculous. Like, you get to play an ex- a team a third time yeah. in a completely neutral venue, which is. Completely ridiculous idea. It was fortunately at the time it was shot down. But if La Liga do go ahead with this proposal to play in abroad, you know, not necessarily just America. I think Miami is where this the Girona Barcelona match proposed. Like if if uh, La Liga go off and do that, then what's to stop Serie A, to stop Premier League, stop Liga, stop Bundesliga, to stop even the Turkish league from just going wherever they please? 
I mean the same thing that's stopping them now, the clubs. That's the only thing that can stop it, you know? But what if the clubs up and vanish and go create a European Super League? If the clubs are on board with it, it's going to happen. Simple as, you know? I don't think that there's anything the fans can do to stop it. It's it's such a... Like, I don't want to use the word depressing because, you know, nothing, none of this has actually happened. But it it's such a disappointing thought that this is even on the cards, that this is being discussed, that we have to sit here and have this conversation. I mean, I'll say depressing. It's a very depressing thought, you know? Um, the tickets to a home game in the Premier League, I think, average around £50, something like that. In America, the preseason friendlies, right? The preseason friendlies, that, what they call it, the Champions Cup? Yeah, something ridiculous. Yeah. The tickets to that in America are above a grand. That's why it's being done. That's yeah. why it's being considered. That and how much money could they sell it to for a TV audience in America? If they're getting one game a year, you know, on their primetime slot, they'd be willing, you know, who wouldn't? Ah, you know, we'll go see a game. It's two of the top teams in the world. Why not? It's just one a year. It's a special attraction. You know, you do that in America. You do that in China. You do that in Qatar. You do it like four times a year in four different places. And you probably make as much money off those four games as you do off all your home games. You know, that's why it's being considered and that's why it might well be done because of the money. And I mean, it really is greedy at this point. There's no other way to put it, especially when, you know, attendances just don't make up much of the club's income. Yeah, like previously that like that was where Manchester United got a lot of their financial advantage over clubs was, you know, Old Trafford was a huge stadium, much bigger than everywhere else. Like they had that revenue coming in from attendances, but that's just completely irrelevant now. Yeah, I mean, it's... Like it basically is. I mean, I think attendance is. Um, I'm going to use Chelsea as an example because I was looking at their financial report for last year, and I think attendances were worth sixty million pounds to Chelsea. Yeah, it would roughly be that. Roughly that, and I mean, okay, that's in a smallish stadium. You know, it's forty five thousand seats, forty four thousand seats. So you know, for Man United, their stadium is seventy eight. Yeah, not quite twice as big. But, you know, they'd be getting 100 million from attendances. Yeah. You know, 100 million, it's a lot of money. But for a Premier League club like this? It's completely dwarfed. Like, there's a fifth of the revenue, roughly. Less even, I'd say. Yeah, maybe less. And, I mean, especially for the English clubs, when they have such a revenue advantage anyway, if you take 100 million away from them, it's not going to affect how much transfers they can make because they are still going to be able to pay enough. You know, it'll just lower the asking price. You know, if they have less money, that's what it'll do because they're paying so much more than, you know, European teams right now. Um, it just means that European clubs won't be able to charge them as much. Yeah. That's all it'll do, you know. It really, it won't make a blind bit of difference to the Premier League, which I think is why the 39th game is still buried in England. You know, it's still not an idea. Whereas Spain see it as a way, this is how we can catch up. And I'd be interested as well to hear like what Americans think of this as well. Like if, if, if you know, if you're from Miami and you're listening to this, do email in with your thoughts on this because... Obviously, you know, I'm not going to tell people from Miami, don't go to this match. You know, it's a, it's an, it's, you know, you're going to be excited. As you said, it's a, it's a big attraction. You're just going to go, ah, sure, we'll go. Like, you can't really blame the fans that you eventually no, go. not at all. And especially, you know, American fans, some of them might never get a chance to see the teams they support, you know. And they're not less of a Barcelona fan or a Real Madrid fan for being born in America, you know. Um, it's their it's their right to want to see their club, but at the same time, there's just there's just something wrong about um, a club not being available to its team in its area. 
you know and maybe part of that is like this might be hard to explain to an american audience because um professional teams there in the mlb and the nfl and the nba they all move around not frequently or anything but it can happen yeah, like the Rams got moved to LA. Yeah, you know, t- teams are always threatening. Their owners are always threatening. Oh, we'll go to LA and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. So. But when it comes to La Liga, clubs like Barcelona, Barcelona is a lot more like their slogan more than a club. You yeah. know, and they're not just a soccer club. They have a basketball club, a hockey team. They have, oh God knows, like it's it's. I think it's something like thirty sports teams in Barcelona's club. Um, it's not just the football club. And Barcelona, um, the club, as it stands in the city, it's a symbol of Catalan, not independence, but sort of sovereignty, you know. Um, there's a whole history behind it, you know, linked to Catalonia, the idea of the region of Catalonia to Catalan people who would speak Catalan rather than Spanish. And um, Espanol in the same city, you know, the name means Spain. That's the opposite. It's for the people who feel Spanish rather than Catalonian living in Catalonia, living in Barcelona and you know when you're playing games in America you're distancing yourself from the people in that, from the people in Catalonia, from the people in Barcelona the people who made the club what it is you know the people who gave the identity to the club because I mean what are they without that identity, what are Barcelona without the um, blue, purple and red you know, that's who they are and, and as well, like the new camp is, is not just a stadium, it is a, a cathedral for them yeah. as well. It is, you know, you think Barcelona, you think the new camp, this huge stadium, like it seats 90,000 yeah. more even than that people in it who are all, who all bleed those colours. Yeah, yeah. You think passing football, you think La Masia, you think youth development, you think all these things when it comes to Barcelona, you know, and a lot of that. It, Right, so even the bits that don't have to do with the fans, even the bits that aren't the fans, like the passing style or whatever, the La Masia, that's not really to do with the fans, but that's part of the identity of the club. And once you start losing the identity of the club, like you're losing what it means to be Barcelona, then they can be Spain Team A, Spain Team B. Yeah, you know, might as well just be what they call them on pace. Exactly. Which you is know? Barcelona currently, but yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can look at it and think, who cares, you know? you can just flick on a random Spanish TV game and, you know, I don't want to say that the fans of Miami would care any less, you know. It just wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be right, you know. You could turn it on and you could look at it and you think, this is a great atmosphere, but it's not really. Because if you look at the MLS, they had their final there over the weekend. Atlanta United won. They're a fantastic club. They're really great, like they play good football and the fans are so enthusiastic, you know, you can see how much it means to them to be in Atlanta, you know, and I mean, I liked looking at that, I liked seeing it, you know, um, I I can, after watching a game of theirs, I want to see them win more games, you know, I want to see them do well, but I'm never going to understand what it means to be an Atlanta fan, no matter how many games I watch, you know, I'm never going to fully appreciate it the way somebody who's born and raised in Atlanta would. And the thing is then, like, bringing a, a La Liga match over to America, what if they brought one to Atlanta? You know, what does that do for Atlanta yeah. United? Yeah, yeah, that's another big point. I mean, you can make an argument that it's two different audiences, that the Atlanta United crowd are the hardcore soccer fans, that um, the ones who come to a Barcelona game or a Real Madrid game would be there for the spectacle, for the entertainment, more than, you know, the actual football. 
but that doesn't help grow the game in America. If you're bringing in people, exactly. If you're bringing in people for entertainment, it's seen as a sideshow. It's seen as you know, it's a circus act. Yeah, yeah. It's seen like look at the boxing Las Vegas. You know, Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor. What was that? That was entertainment, not boxing. You know. Um, and it'd be the same here. It'd be like comparing an Atlanta United game to the Barcelona game would be comparing Floyd Mayweather and McGregor versus Wilder Fury, which happened the last day, which was a really good game or boxing match, not game. <laughs> Got myself a little mixed up there. Yeah, but, but, I wouldn't mind seeing Tyson Fury play football. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, but the thing is, though, as well, like when you watch a La Liga match, you know, each league has a look and feel to it, an yeah. aesthetic. You watch a Premier League match, you watch, say, Chelsea against Manchester City, you go, that's a Premier League match. That's two Premier League sides going at it against yeah. each other. You watch uh, Barcelona playing Espanyol at the weekend, you watch that match, you go, that's a La Liga game. You know, that's, that's what they look like, that's what they sound like, that's what they feel like. You take the two teams out of Spain and bring them somewhere else, you don't get the same aesthetic, you don't get the same feel yeah. the emotions from watching them. definitely definitely the Premier League feels like fast it feels wild whereas Spain is more technical and uh, I don't want to say controlled because that makes it sound slow and dull it's it's technical it's innovative it's you know fast in a different way it's fast through passing through movement not through running and force and La Liga or Syria you know it's tactical it's slower more methodical more precise more you know thought out there's all these different styles and you would you would lose that you know the play style might still be the same but there's just it doesn't have anything else it doesn't have the same atmosphere the stadiums look different you know even the look of the stadiums you know Syria has all Syria has one of (laughs) the most historic stadiums in the world and then what if all of a sudden San Siro was just ignored yeah yeah I mean the stadiums might look old and crumbly but you know that's part of the brand too, you know. It's, yeah. it's, <laughs> you know, um, it just the whole idea just doesn't sit right to me. And you know, you can kind of look at this and say, "Oh well, you're just saying it wouldn't feel right," but that's the point. It wouldn't feel right, you know. It's just not the same. It's not the same. And if you can't appreciate that, it's not the same. Um. I mean, I just, I maybe I can't ever convince you. Like, if you can't appreciate that, maybe I can't convince you. But I don't know how else to put it. And I really, like, I don't want to say only a proper fan can tell, you know. Because that's, you can be a proper fan without ever getting that. You know, you can definitely be a proper fan without ever getting that. But there is just, you know, for somebody who's grown up playing football and watching football, I'd be able to tell the difference and it would matter to me and that's enough, you know? As yeah, far as yeah. I'm concerned, that's enough. It would take a large part of my enjoyment out of it. I wouldn't be able to have as much fun watching football. I just, you know, it wouldn't feel as personal anymore. Is your head in the sand? Can Are you flexible enough to get your head in the sand? My suspicion would be no. It's a huge week of football for Liverpool, finally on top of the Premier League table after weeks of playing catch-up, but now they need to hold on for dear life. But first, they need to secure safe passage to the Champions League knockout rounds. Liverpool-Napoli Tuesday night, how do you see that one going? Oh, I don't know. I really <laughs> don't. don't. I, no, no, I don't want to even <laughs> begin analysis. to guess to call it. Like, how do you call a game like that? 
it's so big. It's it's rare as well that we see a group game that big. Yeah, like, like a straight knockout match. Yeah, really. I mean, Napoli. I know they went out in the group stages last year, and you know they just don't have a great track record in Europe. But neither do Liverpool. To be perfectly honest, over the last couple of years, you know, these are both two teams who are among the very best in Europe. You know, but don't show it on a European stage. Liverpool did get to a Champions League final. Okay, match. right, yes. <laughs> I don't know why I blanked on that completely. Um, uh, I, I, uh, maybe I just kind of associated them with English football underperforming yeah, the, in Europe. The, the, the group stage was a, it was a pretty comfortable passage for them last year. They didn't really have this kind of high-pressure match. Like, even in the knockout rounds, it wasn't... A, like, you look at the run they had, I'm not going to call it easy or anything. It's not easy to get to a Champions League final. They did beat Manchester City, but... They beat Porto five 0 in the first leg. You know that was pretty. That was pretty comfortable. The second le- or second round or third round, I should say, quarterfinal. You're playing Man City. It doesn't quite have that same feel. Like we were just talking about feel there. Champions League games feel different when it's between two domestic sides. Yeah, and sometimes it can feel better. It you can. Know? You know? It can. But I do. I do agree with you, especially. Um, it's not going to Barcelona. Like Man City were probably a better team than Barcelona last year, but Barcelona are almost a more difficult challenge for Liverpool. Yeah. Yeah, especially because Liverpool kind of had the number of City in the league. Exactly. So they came in. They they know they knew what they were going up. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't the sort of nervous excitement of like having to play somebody you haven't played before, having you know no idea of what it's going to be like. They City were a known quantity. Exactly. You know. Yeah. And then you get to Roma in the semi final, and you're thinking semi final of the Champions League. You know, you got one foot in the final. You're playing Roma. You're kind of feeling a bit fortuitous because Roma aren't normally in the semi final. And Roma, you know, I'm not going to denigrate Roma. They're obviously a great side. They completely deserved to get to the semi-final last year. And, you know, it's going to be interesting because they played Roma to see how they come against Napoli. Yeah. But, again, you, you draw Roma in the semi-final and you're thinking, OK, we can do this. We can get to the final yeah. of the Champions League. And then, obviously, the final is a completely different prospect altogether. Yes. Um, uh, so it's going to be, like, they, they didn't have any, like, they already failed in their first uh, big match, which was against PSG, like they, this is two huge matches for them. The first test was, I suppose, the first test really was PSG in the first game because it is a big group. Yeah, and they passed that pretty well, even though you know it required a last last minute winner. They were clearly the better side at Anfield against PSG. Yes, but then they went to Napoli, and it's some of the poorest I've seen Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp. So it's going to be interesting to see how they approach it at home because obviously they beat. PSG at home, they completely destroyed Red Star Belgrade at home, but then they lost PSG away from home. They lost a Red Star at home, or away from home as well, and they lost to Napoli away. So it's three away defeats, two home wins. Is home home form just going to get Liverpool over the line? Um, they'll have to hope so because um, Napoli have looked really good in the rest of their games. You know, like they were um, unfortunate not to beat PSG oh, they, one of those they, two games. I mean, they could have beaten both games, but especially I think it was the home game. They really should have beaten them. You yeah, know, the, well, the first meeting, I think the first meeting was in the Parc de Prince. So right, it was, that first it was the away meeting. game then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that first game was the one they really should have won because they were by far the better team. Yeah, they were um, creating loads of chances, yeah. and then it took a Angel Di Maria, a really good finish from him outside yeah. the box to seal a draw yeah and kind of out of nowhere really. yeah it you was know? definitely you don't want to play it down too much but I mean definitely PSG would have been feeling lucky coming away with the draw there and like if PSG lose that match that's a, obviously a three point swing in various directions for all of those clubs yeah. this is such an op- open group that like if Napoli win even just one of those matches the way they probably should have you know they're yeah. coming into this match a lot more comfortable than they are I mean 
like when the draw was made, we were all kind of looking at this and think this is one of the best groups in the whole thing, and it's proved to be that way, you know. Well, it's, one of, it's probably the best group since uh, Napoli were in the group with uh, Dortmund and Arsenal. Back yes, in the day. yeah. Three, the three of them ended up on twelve points each, and Nap- Napoli missed out then. Like, yeah, they could easily miss out again. Easily, on yeah. Tuesday, um, it could even come down to goal difference in the end. Yeah, um, like we could end up in a scenario where we basically remove Red Star Belgrade from the group and create a new group of just the three teams. Uh, anyone who's getting kind of confused by the uh, the various scenarios should follow Dale Johnson on uh, Twitter. He's very good for these kind of things I've uh, found over over the last while. He's very good at figuring out you know the very various scenarios. Permutations. Permutations is the word I was looking for. Thank you. Uh, but Liverpool know what they have to do going to a, yeah. a, a one nil win should do it, and then a two two or goal two goals or more victory will yeah. definitely do it. And honestly, that helps focus the mind too. You know, they and know this is what we need. Go yeah. out, get it, work through. You're almost in a better. You'd almost prefer to be Liverpool than Napoli, knowing you have to win instead of knowing that you can't lose. I mean, as far like Napoli, the right thing for them to do is just come in with that mindset too. You know, we win, we're done. We're good, yeah. you know. Just not even the, think. Oh, a draw can get us through. Way. No, it doesn't. It doesn't, and it can be hard. Definitely, that can be something that might weigh on Napoli's minds a little bit. Um, yeah, I think Liverpool might pip them. Yeah, I think. I'm kind of feeling that as well. I feel you know the home advantage is going to be key there, um, just because Liverpool are very, very good at home. Like all together, you know, throughout last year, last Champions League, and um, so far this year. And they're just a really strong side at home. I think January was the last time they lost at home yeah. in all competitions. Yeah. That was a FA Cup match. Yeah, exactly. I I think they actually had the B team out at that point, the yeah, FA Cup. They, yeah, they was playing West Brom. It was, yeah. it was a weird match. That yeah, time. yeah. So, like, you know, they're very difficult to beat at home. And um, Napoli definitely has the quality to beat them at home. But um, and Napoli have been like they've been the best side of the three in this group. Definitely, I would say. definitely. Napoli are probably kicking themselves about That's, that Red Star Bill great result. Yeah, as well. like they they should be, they should have more points than they do really, and that could be their undoing. Like that's what it's so hard to predict, and I I don't want Napoli to go out. You know, yeah, they, like there's a charm. To Napoli, there's you know? a charm. To, Carlo yeah. as well. You yeah. want to see him do well. Yeah, and I mean, they do feel like lovable losers over the last yeah. two or three seasons. You know, they had that season they were in the group with uh, City and Barcelona, wasn't it? Uh, last year was City and Shakhtar Donetsk. I don't remember. What am I thinking of? So, I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, they went out last year. They should have gone through in that group, really. They got um, unfortunate with the way fixtures ended up. Yes. Um, but, like, Sarri's Napoli didn't have much success in Europe despite being a very, very good-looking football team. They were very unlucky against Real Madrid, I remember, yeah. recently. Yeah. Yeah, they almost won the uh, Serie A last year. You know, they're just, they always seem to come up short right at the end. That, that's ingrained in their history as well. Yeah. That's going back. They've only won Serie A with Diego Maradona. Like, it's a it's a kind of a, a mantra now. Not mantra, but like, it's a it's it's it's, a it's kind of a cloud over their head of, oh, you can't do it without the best player in the world. It's very much um, mirroring Liverpool in a way, to be honest. And they're both kind of, you know, obviously since the 80s in Liverpool's case, but they're both, you know, always coming up slightly short, lovable losers kind of a thing, you know. Um, I'd like to see Napoli go through, but I think Liverpool will beat them in the end 3-2 or something, you know, it'll be... 
I, I think something like a four. I think anything like a four three or a similar result with more goals. We'll see Napoli. Through. Would that actually that see them actually right? Through. Okay. So it would be funny if they both kind of just kind of agreed slightly. <laughs> you know, what if it finished by four? You know, what, oh, what are the goals? I mean, just, I wouldn't disagree watching from home. You know, I'd be happy for a five four. Yeah, that that would be you know that's pure entertainment right yeah. there. It, it wouldn't quite be Aston Villa five, Nottingham Forest five, but it'd do. It would do. Uh, and then they obviously have a huge league game as well. Although you know how huge do you want to call it because of uh, the form of their opponent, but you know the opponent nonetheless are a huge rival of theirs, Manchester United at home. So two home games this week. Uh, that one's on Sunday at four o'clock. I think if they're, they're going to lose one of these matches, I don't think they're losing to Man United. I mean, you say that, but is there any better time for a Mourinho spoiler? Is uh, there well, any better time? Yeah, this suppose, is this is Liverpool a... just gone top and everything. Yeah, just gone top. You know, coming off maybe a big win against Napoli in the Champions League, they come up, you know, in brilliant form up against United. Terrible game, one nil win. Rashford scoring on the counter. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> is this is this? Feeling likely is this? It, it, um... As you mentioned, it, you know, I can I can envisage it in my head, but and I suppose the advantage for Manchester United is that they're through from the Champions League. Yeah. You know, they they do have to go to Valencia, but do you, I, I'd be surprised if they play a full strength side like Paul Pogba's going playing. So you know it's that because <laughs> uh, he was dropped at the weekend. As I don't see Pogba playing against Liverpool either. So no. that's going to be interesting. Yeah, and I mean Lukaku could well be on the bench as well. Yeah, Lukaku finally scored at Old Trafford this weekend, but he's still finding his feet, like, almost quite literally. Yeah, yeah, and United are an odd bunch at the moment, you know? Yeah, they, they like, it was weird. Like, they won 4-1 at the weekend, but it was against Fulham, you know? You yeah. can't really read much into it. I mean, you can't, but at the same time, that um, that victory, it felt completely different from the way the club has over the last while. There was a much more optimistic atmosphere, and I think part of that is benching Pogba. You know, yeah, Pogba was such an odd figure at the club at the moment. Like he almost feels like he's having a slightly hazard fifteen sixteen season, but Pogba hasn't had the seasons that Hazard had up to that point. So I don't know does he get that benefit of the doubt that Hazard got. I mean, Hazard as well is well was supposedly playing through injury for most of that season too. So he could kind of say, oh, and he's come back since yeah. and had you know great seasons again. So it's hard to kind of point the finger at him too much, whereas Pogba has never really fully lit up United. Yeah, he's Old not Trafford. had a good 38-game, like even a 36-game season with Man United. He's had no. 25, 26, 27 maybe good games over the course of a season, but he's never been on it every match. And now that he's not on it at any matches, really, you know, it's easy to understand why he has yeah. been benched. I mean, he was brought in to be, you know, one of the core players for United going forward for the next 10 years. And then Mourinho was brought in to be United's manager for the next, you know, 10 years as well. And they just can't get along. You know, it's one or the other. And I'm surprised, you know, if you told me that it was going to be one or the other in the summer, I would have said, well, Mourinho will go. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. But right now, I think it's looking more likely to go the other way. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's going to be interesting if I do sell Pablo, what, what kind of fees he does go for. Because obviously he was a world record fee at the time, but since then Neymar over doubled that fee and the inflation that it's caused is absolutely obscene. So Ed Woodward's probably looking at Paul Pablo thinking, I could make a bit of a profit on this. Yeah. Guy. And you yeah. know, if they do make a profit on Paul Pogba, even with the inflation, you're thinking, 
That's not bad business. And Mourinho's got to be looking at him and think, I could get two players for this. Yeah, maybe even three. Maybe even three. Yeah. All at least Fellaini quality. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Three centre-backs. Oh. Three new centre-backs. That all is, at the age of 29. That is that's what Mourinho dream. sees in his dreams. That's that's what's keeping him going that right is, now. Yeah. He was in a good, he was in good spirits at the weekend. He was joking about a lack of water bottles. The yeah, <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, that, that is you know Mourinho. He's won, so he's got nothing to complain about. So he's in a bit of a lighter mood. Yeah. But when it comes to this Liverpool match, like the two matches they played at Anfield since Mourinho's come in were identical matches, both incredibly terrible, both just really boring. Nil-nil draws. Yeah. Nothing ever looked like happening. I remember in the first match, Coutinho had a good opportunity. In the second one, Lukaku had a good opportunity. Both saved by the keepers. I don't think anything's going to change. I really, really don't. Just run a rerun of last year's. It'll be grand. Literally, you could stick the same game up in front of me and I would fully believe that it was, you know, this game. Yeah, the only thing that would look weird is like, hmm, those kits look different. (laughs) And even then, you're like, hmm, those kits look a little better, actually. They should stick with those. Uh, But going back to the Champions League then, there's one other huge Champions League match uh, also on Tuesday night. Uh, Tottenham have to go to the new camp, same we talked about earlier, uh, and they need to match Inter Milan's, uh, what's the word? Results. Results. And... uh, against PSV at home I believe that match is uh, and PSV have nothing to play for Inter Milan have everything to play for do PSV not have the chance of coming third? no because uh, they're on one point and Inter Milan and Tottenham are tied on seven points fair enough so Tottenham have the advantage over Inter Milan in the sense that the head uh, to head. It, it's head to head when they're level on points and Tottenham uh, go, will go through on away goals but there's a huge difference between playing PSV at home when you know they have nothing to play for and going to the new camp. And while Barcelona don't have anything to play for, Barcelona are an infinitely better side than PSV. Yeah, um, Tottenham are going to find it hard, but like they have the quality to go there and get a result. You know, they they were really impressive against Chelsea two weeks ago, and they've been impressive ever since. They were. I, I think they were less impressive against Tottenham or against Arsenal. I think Arsenal were the better side in that match. But even then, in, I think in, I think Tottenham were the better team for most of that game. Uh, I might be in the minority here. Yeah, I think, um, I think you will be. I, I I would say that Arsenal deserved a four-two victory there. I think in the end they did, but it did take um, until Eric Dyer started shushing the crowd. I thought Tottenham were well in control of that, and then I think that lit a fire in the Arsenal team and kind of got them going. I think if it was like we had, we said I said this exact thing last week when we discussed the match. But like if that was last year's Arsenal side, then yeah, Tottenham probably go and win that match. Uh, but that's not the case with the new Arsenal. But against Barcelona, like it looks like Messi might be arrested because La Liga is currently more important than this dead rubber Champions League match. So that'll be a you know a nice little that's Christmas present yeah, for definitely. Tottenham. But it's very difficult to go to the new camp and win. Like what, the last English team to do so was Liverpool in two thousand seven. Really? So, yeah. Or did, wow. Did Chelsea? Chelsea it, won it two one, I think, in the end. Was that a two one victory? Uh, or was it a draw? I think it might have been a draw. Yes, it was. Yes, because Busquets got the first one and then Iniesta got one. Yeah. And then Ramirez got one back, and Chelsea were heading away goals. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So that was only a draw. Yes, two thousand and seven. Then. Yeah, uh, Liverpool won 2-1. Uh, turned around, Deco, I think, scored the first goal in that match. So that's how you know how long ago it wow. was. 
so it's been a while since an English team, and you know, it's not like no English team's been playing in the new camp. Yeah. Man United played there the year after they drew. Chelsea went there twice, not long twice. after that, yeah. and then again. 2009, recently. Tom Henning Overbow. Yeah, well, that yeah. wasn't at the new new camp. Um, yeah, that, that that was at the new camp. That was at Stamford Bridge. I'm fairly sure the Overbow game was in the new camp. No, that was definitely Stamford Bridge. Mm. That was definitely. Um, Iniesta got the equaliser. Yes. out the first. That was definitely yes. Stamford Bridge. Uh, but Arsenal went there a couple of times as well. Manchester City even played there uh, once, if not twice. So. You know, there's been a, yes, plenty of English yeah, matches. Yeah. It's not just a, oh, no English teams play there since 2007 kind of statistic. Yeah, um, and obviously Tottenham won't be as good as some of the teams that have gone there and lost. But um, I do think that Tottenham have an ability to just show up for a game every now and again and, you know, completely dominate. When they really click, they're a fantastic team, you know. Um, and we saw that against Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, Chelsea's one example of it, but they have two or three, you know, kind of in the last couple of months. Maybe the Arsenal wasn't a good <laughs> wasn't a good game to kind of point out for an example. But if they show but they up, do. but if they show up like they did against Chelsea, then you you know you'd back Tottenham to get a result. Yeah, you would. And I mean, Christian Eriksen, I think might be the best player on the pitch if Messi's rested. Yeah, you know, um, Harry Kane's always able to score a goal. You know, they they definitely have chances to go out there and get a win. And they they went to the Bernabeu last year and got a result yeah. as well. So it's you know it's not. Hugely unlikely that they get something. You, the odds are stacked in Inter Milan's favor. Well, I mean, yeah, that's what I was going to come to. You know, I think even if they get a win, it won't be by enough because I can see Inter Milan putting up two or three goals. Well, it'll come down head to head. So you know, all the all Tottenham need to do is win. Oh, is it right? So yeah. you know, that's not too. But again, yes. like Liverpool, they've got a clear goal in their head. You know, they just yeah. have to win. Doesn't matter how they do. It could be a scruffy late winner. It could be a four nil blowout. It doesn't matter. Uh, as long as they get the victory. So that is an advantage for Tottenham in that way. But yeah. the disadvantage is they have the more difficult match. Yeah, and I think also um, Tottenham's fullbacks aren't really good enough to deal with Barcelona's wingers, whoever yeah. they end up playing and there. Jordi Alba's yeah. in such fine form as well. Jordi Alba, yeah. But again, he could be rested because Barcelona yeah. don't need to be playing Jordi Alba. Yeah, I do. Yeah, Even with all those rested players, um, they're going to have to ride their luck, is what I'm trying to say. You know, Uh, Barcelona are going to get three or four really big chances, and it's going to be up to Hugo Lloris and, you know, a bit of lucky or unlucky finishing in this case. Um, But, you know, they're good enough to go out there and get that result, so it's not completely impossible. Yeah, and uh, those matches are both on Tuesday, so uh, we'll look forward to those. Uh, that'll do us for the show this week uh, thank you for being here Matthias thank you hopefully we'll have you back again soon yeah it'd be nice and uh, before we close out the show just congratulations to Harry Redknapp King of the Jungle <laughs> uh, well deserved victory there for him on uh, I'm a Celeb last night uh, I mean he was the best performer by a long shot oh usually you know? definitely uh, definitely definitely wheeler dealer Harry yeah uh, definitely uh, so congratulations congratulations to Harry and uh, thank you for listening and we'll be back again next week thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode then don't forget you can tell family and friends about the show spread the word of the Total Football Takeover you can also follow us on social media at the TF Pod on Twitter and Total Football Pod on Instagram you can also be found on podcast services including Spotify by searching Total Football Podcast the more the merrier that's what we always say <laughs>